Hello, and welcome to The Appetite. We are clinicians from Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment center in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Carter Umhau, and I'm joined by the Opal founders. Dr. Lexi Giblin. Kara Bazzi. Julie Church. Today we're exploring sport and how the qualities that make a good athlete might be the very same temperamental factors that lead to an athlete's loss of joy in their sport, not to mention maybe a struggle with disordered eating and overexercise. Kara Bazzi will be sharing from her expertise, drawing on her experience both as a collegiate athlete and as the creator of Opal's exercise and sport program. We'll be looking at the athlete through the lens of radically open dialectical behavioral therapy, wondering what we might be able to learn about the particular strengths and struggles of the athlete through understanding of the overcontrolled temperament. We hope this conversation will create space for more freedom, flexibility, and joy in your relationship with exercise, sport, or movement. So to start us off, I would love to hear what what makes an athlete great. All right. <laughs> I've been waiting for this. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, gosh, you know, I'm really excited about today's podcast. Um, for those of you that are sport lovers out there, athletes yourselves, uh, just to talk about more about sports and how that intersects with our work at Opal. Um, and this question of what what makes an athlete great? Um, You know, I think there are so many things um, that contribute to an athlete's greatness. And I I imagine even in just asking that question, certain athletes come to mind of, Mm. gosh, you know, old school Michael Jordan back in the day, got Tiger Woods, right? Athletes that come to mind as just really stellar, incredible athletes. Um, And there's so many reasons Um, things that are in an athlete's control and things that are not controllable that make an athlete great. And of course, the big one of what's not in control is genetics, which is a big one, (laughs) whether you're blessed with those genes (laughs) to be great. Um, And then there's, of course, the things that are that are in control, you know, in our in our control. I think um, somebody came up with a list of about 40 qualities of what makes an athlete great, including Mm. Um, you know, work ethic, coachability, um, nutrition, how someone's caring for their body with nutrition, training, again, genetics, um, the list. There's lots of factors. Can you guys think of any other ones that come to mind? I would think of discipline right away, mm-hmm. maybe because I don't have it in the same way when it comes to sports, <laughs> but discipline and yeah. that, that relates to teachability, I would yep. imagine as well. Yeah, access mm-hmm. to yeah. training, access to coaches. So I was thinking of resources. Resources. In that way. Uh-huh. Well, I know today we are talking about the overlap between radically open dialectical behavioral therapy mm-hmm. and, and sport, and I think of lots of over-controlled traits as being quite advantageous for mm-hmm. athletes. So mm-hmm. things like attention to detail, ability to delay gratification, mm-hmm. superior inhibitory control, mm-hmm. Um, grit, mm-hmm. um, being more rule bound mm-hmm. um, versus mood dependent mm-hmm. in your decisions to make to do workouts, for example. Like, right. I don't feel like I'm going to train today. Would be right. a more of a, I just don't feel like it. Would yeah. be more of a mood driven mm-hmm. characteristic mm-hmm. for under con- in, in the under controlled temperament. But somebody who's over control would, would be like, what does mood have to do with it? Right. This is just what I was supposed done. to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I would think. Um, 
over control would really serve mm-hmm. a person quite well, generally in sport. Yeah. Yeah. So this tem- the temperament aspect of how yeah. that, how that oversec- or intersects with sport performance. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would think it would um, serve certain sports better to have mm-hmm. an over-controlled temperament. Mm-hmm. So more sports where there's not, where spontaneity isn't required, mm-hmm. like running mm-hmm. or swimming, mm-hmm. whereas with um, basketball mm-hmm. or where you're, where unpredictability is part of the sport, mm-hmm. um, I think that would be more difficult for the over-controlled mm-hmm. client yeah. or for the over-controlled athlete. Right. right. For the individual sports, you would inherently have a little bit more control over your sport performance because you're not relying on a team. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can take more things. You can you can assume more control in an individual. And the movement's more repetitive. It's the same, almost the same <clears throat> movement, versus mm-hmm. um, what you experience in basketball or football. Yeah, where you just don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then, one of the interesting, again, this is these we're going to be exploratory today. I think as as it relates to temperament and sport. But one interesting question would be: chicken or the egg? Does an over-controlled person get drawn to particular sports? Um, or does it go in the opposite direction? Do a, does a sport make someone a little bit more into mm-hmm. a particular way of being? Mm-hmm. I don't know the answer. Oh, I, I was it's waiting a good for question. the answer. I wanted it's it. It's actually a question <laughs> in the eating disorder field. If if somebody has, is, is it kind of the chicken or the egg? Did somebody with some of the propensity or the characteristics of an eating disorder get drawn into those particular sports? Or did the sport mm-hmm. itself and the sport environment elicit mm. uh, um, eating disorder behaviors? Backing up a little bit, um, a lot of our listeners probably wouldn't know that within eating disorder treatment, movement and sport isn't always talked about. So I'd love to hear from you, Kara, what what it is that brought you to the kind of the positionality that you might have around how to think about athleticism Mm -hmm. um, and how it relates to this. Well, I think my entry into it was personal because like I said, even with the chicken or the egg, I developed an eating disorder within the context of my sport, Mm. um, through long distance running and and doing that in the collegiate environment. Um, and so I really personally could connect those dots between the traits of a more of having a restrictive food disorder and then being an elite athlete Mm. and seeing them function um, to help my sport performance, but then, as we'll talk more later, how it can then how it turned into hindering my sport performance. And so, because of that experience, I mean, I think it just fueled this passion of mine to want to get into this work and to help um, both on the prevention side and with athletes that are dealing with this and and really addressing a lot of the myths out there about how the I mean, really, what I've learned is the OC temperament um, can be problematic. Uh, because people in the sport world are still often working with the assumption that those are um, very essential to being a good athlete and not seeing how it can turn, um, it can quickly kind of become, go onto the other side of the fence where it can become problematic. And so those, um, I would say that's the, probably the most pleasure I get out of what I do at Opal is having these conversations each week Mm -hmm. in a group called Rethinking Exercise and Sport um, of just people get to the point of seeing that it didn't work, but they don't know why. And they don't know how to connect the dots of what's kind of become problematic. So the way that they maybe went about their life, went about their sport, went about their passion, 
was functioning really well in one way, and then mm-hmm. it started translating yeah. and got them into some really Murky big territory. struggles. Right. And it usually works well at the beginning. I mean, mm-hmm. that's often an athlete's story is, mm-hmm. especially when they're young and in youth sports, you know, usually they're, things are going really well. Then you start to add to get to the more competitive levels mm-hmm. and it starts to go, okay, and then it start and then as more and more of that experience occurs, then we get into some more problematic behaviors. And, and a lot of it is unknowing. Um, and, and when you think of even just the kind of broader cultural perspective of no pain, no gain, right. just do it, more is better, put on your game face. There's a lot of kind of phrases out there and mottos out there that are are sort of seen um, without any question as is this, what would be communicated in the sport world. But taken to the far extreme, it can become yeah. And I'm thinking about the ways that it, what it looks like when it gets, when it becomes, when OC traits are, are um, problematic for an athlete. So I'm thinking yeah. of, you know, the the high pain tolerance becomes tolerating in- injuries that they sh- they, mm-hmm. they shouldn't be tolerating, or the um, the sport becomes more important than the relationships. Um, you know, the the person maybe is their over controlled temperament drives them to choose a workout over going to mm-hmm. dinner with their friend. Mm-hmm. or it, their their competitiveness on the team gets in the way of their connection to their teammates um, and the sport succeeding, achieving in the sport becomes more important than the team, the teammate, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. And, and the hard part is that people don't often see that as a problem because mm-hmm. they're so wrapped up in the sport performance mm-hmm. that they don't care what they're sacrificing right. mm-hmm. until they care. <laughs> often, you mm-hmm. know, that... They're willing to make all those sacrifices. I mean, especially when you get higher, higher up in the um, athlete world and you go up to even the Olympic levels, there's, there's, is it, the question, is it worth the sacrifice? Is it worth it to have that achievement and the sacrifices involved in that achievement? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a difficult question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause I could imagine being on a team, you're also, you're also competing <laughs> against your teammates in some ways or at some levels. Um, and so you want to make sure that you don't get too attached. You need to make sure that you're not too concerned about the relationships or your emotions around what's happening in order to do a little bit better than that person or use that fuel. I I remember that as a very not serious athlete, but like (laughs) using the fuel of being angry at the other team in order to play really well, Mm -hmm. which would be really helpful. But, you you know, if you care too much, it could be a problem. (laughs) Right. Well, and that brings up um, helpful envy versus unhelpful envy. And I'm curious how this relates to competition, Mm -hmm. because um, in RODBT, we talk about unhelpful envy being that envy where you're like, like you're, you're, you're hoping they do poorly the other and you Mm want to succeed and win and, and, and whatever that might mean for the relationship, or you have a, you know, brewing resentment towards a rival that you hold. And that would be potentially damaging to the relationship with that person maybe that doesn't matter because all that matters is achieving Mm -hmm. (laughs) but then there's also helpful envy which um i think is what you're probably getting at when you talk about competition from an ro perspective which is about where you feel inspired by someone and Mm -hmm. you feel um, like interested in how they're 
achieving what they're achieving and you you because you've seen that they've been able to do something that you didn't think was possible for example you now it now opens the door to your own possibility and your own achievement right and that that feeling of competition where Mm -hmm. you're you're not you're you you appreciate how they're driving you to achieve and take it a next another step that you didn't even know you could totally could achieve yeah that's the language we commonly use in our group is perfect comparing the perfectionism and excellence because that there is that healthy a lot of times clients will ask well is it healthy to be competitive and and that and what Lexi's just describing is what I would describe as that healthy competitiveness where you are inspired by somebody else and that fuels your kind of drive or your um, investment in the sport but them winning doesn't diminish you mm. as an athlete. Yeah. And that's the big differentiation. Mm-hmm. And so in a perfectionist model, which again would be more of an OC trait, is that the result, the um, kind of the, the end result of the competition is a marker for whether you're good or bad, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so if, if somebody beats you, then you're less than. And that does not, that doesn't, that's not, that's not a great place to be. Um, whereas if you're working from a more excellence model, you're, you're just pursuing something that you want to be pursuing and you want to be great at it. Mm-hmm. And you're not as hard on yourself and down on yourself if you're not the winner. Mm-hmm. I always think it's important in competition to think that if you don't have anyone to compete against, you don't have a sport. <laughs> yeah. You, you can't compete, <laughs> yeah. right? Compt- so, yeah. yeah. And so <laughs> if you necessary. and if, if you were so good that there was nobody that would beat you, then you'd also be bored yeah. as an it's athlete. It's so fun to have competition. You have to have competition yeah. to so be alive. Yes. So to be you know, yes. have be lively and like live mm-hmm. that. Yes. So, there's like a it's not all evil. Competition is yeah. so there's so much fun. I mean, that's what I it just I think it can it, it drives a lot of energy and excitement. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, even just you talking about it, I'm like, yes. No. And so it, it <laughs> yeah. can be so great as so long as if you're not winning or if you're doing poorly, you're not crushing yourself Yeah, in the midst of it. And, you know, I can relate personally to kind of all of this where the OC got the best of me, where it really just completely crushed me and my sport performance declined as a result of how like living in a more perfectionist model where joy just gets sucked out of mm. of the sport and that's just that's that's not fun <laughs> that's mm-hmm. I mean that's a nice horrible way to end the day I remember crying after <laughs> oh, every single yeah. almost every single race in college just being just beating myself up that I was um I just didn't amount to anything because I mm. I didn't race well mm-hmm. whereas now it's like yeah I might be bummed if we get crushed on the basketball court <laughs> but I I mean nothing it's not it's not going to suggest anything about who I am as a person um Mm-hmm. So and I had a serious rival growing up. Yeah, like of one person that I was <laughs> gunning against, major, 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 and it. I and we were on the same team. Was this basketball? Swimming, swimming. Yeah, yeah. and we just. I mean, it was years and years of at, going after each other. And it, would and you describe it in a healthy way, like a I fun way? I don't think it was very no. healthy. <laughs> no, I mean, she did. I did achieve more because of my mm-hmm. because of her mm-hmm. and I think she mm-hmm. would say the same but we weren't I don't I wouldn't say we kept a close relationship yeah. through it and, and we were on the same team yeah mm-hmm. um I think we were like gunning for each other at every at every pass mm-hmm. I think that's um, hard to keep a good relationship though too yeah right like what kind of relationship are you expecting to have you know mm-hmm. like what like even in the RO conversation of connectedness and like trying to keep 
that. I'm like, okay, well, what does that actually look like? Yeah, I, yeah. Right. There was a great Lexi and I both love 30 for 30s on ESPN. And they're uh, about the tennis players and how they're just, I, I'm horrible with the names. Help me out. No? Nobody Which can help me players? out. Um, female mean, tennis players that were. Sharapova? Venus and Serena? Yes. Venus, Venus and Serena. Serena. Williams? No, no, no this is horrible. Should have brought <laughs> no. it up. Anyways, um, <laughs> but, uh, and just, it was so amazing to be able to watch how they're, um, competitiveness, and then even watching the film about the female golfers that came yeah. of age and created the LPGA, the film called The Founders, of all those women and how they were competing against each other, mm-hmm. but then how there was different ways that some of them had still that camaraderie and connectedness yeah. and community building like within the sport, and then some of them didn't. Like Some of them more were um, independent, yes, right? Like right? took their own yep, stance right. and separated from the tribe, and then like what did that do for the sport? But yep. um, Were so. you talking about Battle of the Sexes? No. Oh shoot. What's that? That's a that's a tennis movie. <laughs> oh shoot. Yeah. No. But sorry. Anyway. Oh, I I shouldn't have read it up. Oh, listeners, okay. you can tell us. That's okay, but I mean it does speak to the idea that the there's name. there's a way to have a really amazing team atmosphere that allows you to really build each other up. Right. Or it could be something that's incredibly destructive. Right. But I'm having a hard time imagining uh any time in the sport where you where it might not be helpful. Sorry, where it would be helpful actually to to kind of dehumanize your opponent a little bit. That w- mm. that could be mm-hmm. helpful sometimes, right? Sounds nasty. Ooh, Carter has this like, look on her face like, I know, no, I, no. Say it's not so. Yeah. <laughs> but like, you kind of have to make sure you're thinking about how you're doing. Or like, right. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I think it's when you're on the same team, it gets trickier. Right. Mm. Well, that, ha- you know, I was thinking back to a client we had that was in a, dist- or a um, collegiate distance team, distance running team. And how she was describing the team culture where it was kind of dog-eat-dog world, right? Like, they were just – they were competing against each other. They lost a sense of connection. Um, They were competing a bunch – over a bunch of things, including who could eat the least and Mm -hmm. um, who could run the fastest. And, you know, everything became a competition. Um, And and in in that kind of culture, I mean – just it's like for that's where it's kind of becomes for what is for what is that um mm-hmm. is that really going to feel if you're going to succeed kind of on the uh in a in a race or a competition how fulfilling is that kind of in the end when you're looking back at your college years mm-hmm. um and seeing that that was kind of the one thing that you were taking from it mm-hmm. right and that's where it's like when do the people start to have the reflection that maybe those things matter because i th- I think of injury, I guess, like when somebody isn't able to compete in their sport, then they might look and like you said, it, right. it, 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 they don't care until they really care. Right. But what is it that would prompt that? And if you have a coach, I, this is where I get really excited about the, what coaches can do to create a culture mm. and create a mm. team environment that that looks at these bigger pictures and, and a lot of coaches, I mean, there's some great coaches out mm. there that do that, that see the athlete as a whole person, whole person. and not just as an instrument for achievement um, and cares about their long-term life and their mental health and their kind of what, who they, who they are outside of the field, who they are outside of the court and brings that directly into the team culture that that stuff matters mm-hmm. um, and has the tribal, has more of a tribal um, view of, of the team. And uh, you know, in, in my, my belief, I don't know if there's research out there, but I would, I would say, heck yeah, that improves performance when you're creating that kind mm-hmm. of team culture, because we are full human beings. So even if we can kind of split off part of ourselves for athletic achievement, 
that's not a sustainable, that's not supporting a sustainable lifelong athlete. And certainly teams. I no, mean, yeah. having that, having the relationships of primary concern would yeah. make sense in terms of what you, how you play on the court together. Totally. Yeah. Um, it seems, I'm, I'm curious, I think this is the same thing you're saying, but that the, the coaches that um, I've loved in my life, shout out to Coach Nelson, <laughs> and my my daughter's soccer coach right now I think is in mm. in this camp as well. They seem to they seem to understand or they seem to think that you know sport is kind of secondary. The the sport itself is secondary. It's really about the life that we're the lessons we're learning about life as we play this totally. sport, and those life lessons being loss and um, difficulty with teammates and the relationships at mm-hmm. hand and. The sport's kind of just a proxy mm-hmm. to all the lessons you get to pushing learn yourself. through sport. Yeah, yeah right. pers- pushing yourself, and um, and it seems like when they, you know, when their focus is on the relationships, like my my daughter's just coming home, just feeling like super supportive of her teammates, but competitive at the same time with them. Right, and somehow he's created a culture like that. That there's that there's a, and and they think they're higher achieving because of their team culture. Right. Which is, I think, what you're saying. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Totally. I mean, the, the, I think, you know, it was something that I had the felt experience before then I was doing it more professionally. But, um, I mean, again, it can only go so long if you're just kind of treated as, um, in a more objective way as somebody, as an athlete for the sport performance side mm-hmm. only, mm-hmm. that it's just about your kind of physical training. Um, yeah. I, I think you're, you might get, you might eke something out of your athlete for a little while, but it won't last. Yeah. And I think of all this, the, the, maybe some of the athletes that have been, you know, later on gone into treatment <laughs> and have yeah. kind of dealt with their mental health later. Yeah. Um, and I, gosh, I just, I think if, if that's a part of the coaches, um, environment that they're creating on their team, they can, that man, they can do a lot of good in the world. Yeah. It, to me, asks the question, the question of is life about achievement? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And I think that's, I mean, I think that's part of the drive of these athletes is if they equate, and this was me, equating achievement with self-worth, then again, they're going to do anything to get that achievement if that's so intricately entwined. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's be entwined because of something they've gotten, some message they've gotten. That came from somewhere. That didn't just come from birth. Um, So somehow they made that association and... And that's why they're willing to do a lot of things to get there. Yeah. And that's just. I was actually on a walk this morning and um, I live by a middle school. I think it's a middle school. And I was watching all the middle schoolers walk to to walk to school. And I noticed on my first pass past the school, all these kids were kind of alone. And and then suddenly when I came back about 20 minutes later, there was a collection of kids that had just started playing basketball. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about, um, Wow, who is the kid that got up early, decided to grab their their friends or get to the court in order to make friends before class, play for what, 10, 15 minutes, and then go into school? It's like, who is that kid? That definitely was not me. Yeah. <laughs> definitely wasn't. But this conversation's reminding me of those those kids today because it feels like that's the kid that probably is is learning oh if I show up that's the time for my friends or that's the time where I can use the skill that I have to maybe meet people or get out of my house because I hate my house or whatever it is that has led them to this basketball court early in the morning to play before they go to school 
right. that takes a lot of willpower to even think as a <laughs> I was not that kid, but like to think in the morning when you're that age, I want to wake up early or not tough. because they're so excited about it. Right. Yeah. Right. It's, yes. It goes back yeah. to that movement as birthright um, podcast about that we have different appetites and mm-hmm. there's some kids that that would be like breathing be to it. them. Yeah. It's anticipatory yep. reward. Oh, yeah. Get on That's that so court. Cool. Oh, I so was good. one of those kids and my so kids cool. are not. They would never, they don't, they would not do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm having to manage my difference between mm-hmm. me and my girls because our appetites are so different for that kind of thing. Yeah. When I've got three boys and two of them right now are into the Xbox, folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Video games. Deep and it's it. about winning if yeah. you're wondering yeah <laughs> it's about winning yeah it's not about relationships no, with each other but that <laughs> i but as i'm listening i'm like i gotta think about this because it it impacts their relationships and it, really? it's yeah. so hard for me we actually took it away from them this weekend because it's just ridiculous how angry they get at each other Aww. because of somebody winning or losing and i'm yes. like it's a video game yeah. i'm thinking of all my guy friends right now who would counter that and say uh-huh. No, I find so much connection because my right, friend that game. lives in Portland yeah. Yeah. can right. play <laughs> online on a team right. against some other random people online. Or yes. I don't know exactly. Sorry, I don't doing, mean to go to virtual anyway. games, oh, yeah. everybody. But all but... the banter too of it. Oh. Some, that there's so much pleasure. That <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> there's so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, a big key though is is outcome. You know, mm-hmm. the outcome piece. Right. Right. It, like there's so much to enjoy about competition and sport. And if and yet if you hang it up, hang your hat on the outcome, that's when mm-hmm. it gets and what the outcome means, that's mm-hmm. when it gets it can be can become more problematic mm-hmm. to either your sense of your who yourself or your relationships. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about this, though, still, because with a higher level athlete, I feel like that sounds maybe so much simpler than it probably feels like. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, if your job, for instance, is sport. Right. If that is your actual job, thinking about your relationships within it, mm, probably not going to be your first priority each time. Totally. Um, winning, you get this much of a bump in your salary, et cetera, et cetera. It matters to win. So I, w- I think I want to go back to kind of explaining a little bit more like what what are the factors that make that a healthier relationship mm-hmm. to the sport and the movement, um, even when maybe winning is still the emphasis. Right. Well, yeah. and, you know, I, I relate to that being a scholarship athlete and I didn't seek help until I was off the team. And, yeah. and I think that was a major, major pressure is that um, of, of keeping my scholarship and you have to perform. Mm-hmm. You can they can you know, you can have your scholarship pulled from you. Yep. Um, and yet I think, you know, my answer usually just goes to, um, I don't know, like sort of the, the desire for, and maybe this would require more experimentation, I guess, from potentially from coaches, but I just believe so strongly that you can, that both can exist. It doesn't mean that if you focus on, kind of the mental health aspect or sort of athletes as a whole person that then the um, kind of the athletic performance is going to decline. I mean, I think it just enriches, I think it enriches it, but that's a risk. And there's a lot of, you know, coaches are coming from their own, um, their own histories within sport or how they've been taught, um, how they've been taught to, to coach. And I think it's scary to try something different Mm -hmm. and, I think they both can coexist. Like when I look back at, at my experience, I think that um, 
I mean, my performance went through a lot of different parts of it. It, it got better and then it totally um, dropped uh, and, and got a lot worse. Um, Once but, you started becoming more concerned with... The, well, the I was so disordered. Or your <laughs> was, relationship with food was yeah. Like, I was so yeah. uh, restrictive that eventually, I mean, but the mental health side too, all the stress and anxiety that then I was having about what was going on with food, mm-hmm. um, my performance declined. But I, I think of it, it to me. There's a there's. It's been fun to think about the ways that these things can get in, more involved in um, sport programs, and I know people have tried to bring programming in. Um, into athletic departments and the collegiate level, into adolescent programs, into youth sports, um, about addressing things as a whole athlete. There's, yeah. I just learned about Z Girls is a um, a place in that was born out of Seattle. That's bringing um, whole athlete programming into their with their athletes, and then there's Girls on the Run that brings in the programming. There's different programming that's coming in. The body um, the body project is the one that mm-hmm. Carolyn. Um, Beck? Becker? Becker? I think it's Carolyn Becker. Yeah. Carolyn Becker has brought in and, and she's tried to get that adopted in different athletic departments collegiately. Um, so I, I mean, I think that's, there's resources mm-hmm. issues, yeah. <laughs> but there's some pretty simple programming and curriculum that I think could go a long way. Yeah. Yeah. There's something that I don't feel like we've talked about and I, I bet we'll probably do another episode about this. But we've t- we kind of dropped the word nourishment, or we've talked about food a little bit within this. But I would imagine that for some, it's pretty difficult to to kind of separate a really healthy diet and amazing sport performance, or even like the people that are just wanting to go to the gym really regularly. It's really hard to kind of divorce that from I have to have a really strict diet as well. Um, so. I wonder if maybe Julia, you especially could speak to kind of what the actual impact is of of poor nourishment mm-hmm. and and movement mm-hmm. um, or within movement mm-hmm. and what that actually looks like. Yeah. Instead of the kind of rigidity that some might imagine in terms of like super, super, super healthy, restrictive yeah. rules around stuff. Yeah. Because a lot of athletes do talk about really restrictive diets that they might be on mm-hmm. or do they i don't know <laughs> i think they do i mean i think most athletes probably think about their nutrition to some level right 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 they need to so yeah and so then they're going to use it they're going to think about it in different ways depending on their personality i think their temperament and also just mm-hmm. like their own food relationship before their sport into their sport yeah um i think kind of how food is managed within each sport's different too um but i think i I do. Yeah. With this being sort of temperament in sport, it's like so much like I'm like, okay, well, the OC person that would do stuff with food is going to look one way. But I think the um, just to say it, basically, it's like all the systems of our body need nourishment to some level um, and have different interaction with the different nourishment that we put into our body. And so I think of when I think oftentimes athletes maybe come to face that, oh, nutrition might be an impact here um, when maybe they have an injury or something is going on with maybe muscular or skeletal area, Mm -hmm. right? Like an injury with muscles or bones, right? Fracture or strain or something like that. And they would maybe get some advice from who knows, like anybody, right, around them about nutrition might impact this or maybe take this supplement or something like that. Um, And I I think sometimes maybe it gets lost that somebody's cardiovascular health can be impacted by um, 
nutrition too, right? So, okay, like, yes, our lungs and the way that we breathe is fueled by nourishment. So I think all, it's, it's every system of our body. Right. right. Digestion. So if, if somebody is more OC and trait, they're probably going to be more rigid. So I would probably have that as an example. I would say they probably eat yeah. more similar foods and similar routines and similar rituals. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. We could expand or, on yeah. that. Right. But mm-hmm. just more routine around right. that and things. OK, well, I know that this works for my training days and I know that this works for the days I'm competing or mm-hmm. um, so I think that's something to name. And I think naturally what can happen with that is that there can be some common nutrient deficiencies that can come from that because if they're just eating this one thing a lot, they may be missing right. a whole category of food or um, not in- integrating you know, variety mm-hmm. or not being able to have that. So, I mean, there's a lot that could yeah. be impacted, but um, I don't know if that if there's anything I would add. But Yeah. Mm-hmm. So temperamentally it gets emphasized that they – this idea that someone might be actually more susceptible than to an eating disorder because they're thinking about these ways as their body being almost like a machine Mm -hmm. that needs kind of the the right thing at the right time for this result and it could be more complicated Mm -hmm. and taken to the extreme right like and the yeah the rigidity piece seems huge Mm -hmm. which goes into the ro is kind of the inflexibility the rigidity Mm -hmm. and the inflexibility that can start to just do a lot of do a lot of no good. Yeah. <laughs> do a lot of harm. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. by both like physically, like maybe leaving some of their systems in their body not working totally at at their best. And then also, yeah, emotionally. I think of the nervous mm-hmm. system even, just right. because all of our emotions have to come through our brain and our endocrine system and all that stuff. And all that needs fat. And our brain needs mm-hmm. fat to be able to have nice, healthy f- like firing of all of those neurotransmitters and that okay, well, that might not be happening, right? right. Um, for somebody that's not nourishing themselves with enough fat in their mm-hmm. d- diet or something. So I think of that stuff too. That those things aren't always thought of maybe when they're creating what might feel good for their digestion for competition day, or like, right. are they thinking about maybe their emotional well-being? I don't know, right. um, or their ability to be quick thinking on the court. Like those things, like fat could help with those things, but maybe they're not thinking about that as yeah. much as. Um, maybe which is what feels I, th- I hear digestion is something that's often like, mm-hmm. OK, well, this feels good in my body, <laughs> but maybe they're not they can't maybe feel what's happening at the cellular level. Um, so, yeah. Very and all point. this stuff is like I think most people that are competitive and athletic and, and so thoughtful about the things they're doing for their training and their nutrition. How can I do so much and put so much thought into it? But it is when it gets to the extreme that then. Um, probably there's mm-hmm. going to be a miss there that mm-hmm. then could potentially damage their performance right. because of leaving one of their systems of their body not functioning well enough. Right. And so. it's really common for athletes to have, you know, the the rituals that they would have before a performance, before a game, before a competition. Um, and that can be really helpful. I mean, that's something that yeah. people talk about in sports mm-hmm. psychology. But again, it's like the question is, well, what happens if it's absent and what happens when it's not there? Are you over relying on it? Is there a rigidity to it that I can only compete well if I've done A, B and C? And Mm -hmm. if I have not done A, B and C and I perform poorly, I'm going to attribute it to those three things. And this is where I love that list of the 40 plus items that contribute to sport performance because an OC person is going to way err on the side of I have 100 percent control over performance and sport outcome. Mm. And it's just bullshit. It's not true. <laughs> right. Right. Like, and, and they're going to be, and one thing that would be hard is they're going to be less adaptive mm-hmm. um, to the things that, you know, that aren't controllables. Like, um, like I usually, one of the things we'll bring into 
a group is just kind of take somebody through an athletic competition and have them have a result that either got their achievement or didn't. And then how are they going to process their, mm. usually if they don't get what they want, <laughs> how mm. are they going to process that? And what are they going to sign to that? And are they going to say, well, it's because I was a little over on my weight or mm. I didn't eat the right thing. Mm. And are they going to kind of err on everything that would be kind of quote unquote controllable? Right. They can fix something. So they can fix something versus what about the weather? <laughs> mm. What about the referee that you had no control and made two horrible calls, mm. right? Like there's there's so many things within sport, especially, well, I mean, in both individual and team mm. sports, but there's things that are uncontrollable mm. and an OC person isn't yeah. going to want to embrace or usually are going to less give less credit to those things. I just think of too, look, if somebody is more controlled and they want to eat the same thing every night and let's say this like really important match or race or whatever happens in, that just happens to be annually, it's at this place that they have a lot of friends and family. So then the night before the race, they want like people, you know, social connection could happen. And what if that could be something that could be really inspiring, right. but then they can't, they can't do it. They can't go out to eat because they need to eat the thing they need to eat. Mm -hmm. I just think of that of like they're going to think that they need to eat that. But what if totally. there could be this like fuel of like, yes, oh, connection totally. that could actually move them into that. And I don't know. If I just think, oh, that's yeah, that they could just be, There could be some. Usually a coach will say don't try anything new the day before the race or don't try anything. If you're going to experiment, experiment on practice before. days, yeah. <laughs> which mm -hmm. is good. I mean, that's sound advice. Yeah. yeah. Just because you don't yeah. maybe know how your body is going to respond if it's something new with food or, yeah. um, but yeah, like the flexibility to, to still see, see the relatives or something. Yeah. Like I remember Lauren Fleshman, whom some listeners might know of a, you know, a elite runner. She had talked about what she had done kind of pre pre-race meals. And then she went to a competition, um, in, I can't remember. I think it was, was it in, I, I can't remember where it was. It was an international competition. And um, anyways, she was seeing people from other countries just have such different mm. type of pre-race meal. Mm. Yeah. The Africans oh, yeah. were, had, had such a different, different um, meal. And so, so it allowed her to take that step and that jump to try something different mm. in a pre-race meal because she was kind of, you know, open and flexible that maybe what she thought was the mm. perfect the perfect thing to be eating before a competition could mm. possibly, there could possibly be other options and alternatives. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is, um, if I might offer the definition of psychological health mm -hmm. from RODBT, which you're getting at mm -hmm. with um, Lauren's mm -hmm. uh, story. And so those three prongs, and maybe this is how we can think about when, when the OC get, starts to get a person in trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, totally. Cause the first, the first um, pillar is um, receptivity and openness. Mm -hmm. So in that, in that story, you're saying that Lauren saw these people trying a different meal mm -hmm. before she was open to that new information right. about food. Right. Totally. She was able to take that in. Um, also receptivity and openness to coaches. Are they giving you feedback? You know, are you open to what they're saying mm -hmm. or the environment? Or are you receptive and open to your your times and how you're performing and all of that? And then the second prong is um, flexible responding. So that's your behavioral adaptation. So now that you have this information, now that you have this new way of thinking, do you make changes to your behavior based on that new information? Okay. And maybe if you're in, a, in trouble, if your OC is causing you trouble, you might be more in a rigid posture and just not changing your behavior based on the new information that you may or may not be receiving. Um, and then the third prong is connectedness, um, relationships and closeness. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, it's 
It's a great example of that. Right. And I think about coachability in that mm-hmm. in those prongs. Um, totally. in the first and second one, how how coachability is all about receptivity and openness and flexibly responding. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one that seems to be one that is more controversial maybe is the connectedness one mm-hmm. and how that relates to performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and yet I'm imagining people that have like accepted awards and won and they're sharing the story of I did this for my mother or I am so grateful for this or I was thinking about this person as this big motivating factor mm-hmm. or my coach, right? Totally. Yeah, gratitude yeah. to the coach. Yeah. 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 So it's it can be in there. And how to have a complex advocate. relationship. Totally. I mean, right. <laughs> the athlete-coach relationship is really complex. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to add to the flexible responding is and and this is just from from what I I know if I zoom back into my twenty year old self, is how scary it is to make a change as an athlete. Um, it is really hard. So I think for athletes out there that are listening, you know I I wanna I I wanna say kind of be brave, but also you can do it in the off season, like trying <laughs> yeah. it out when it the yeah. the stakes aren't so high because it is really scary. I mean I. It was so scary to do anything different because I just it, the the lot felt on the line. I mean, now in retrospect, it's it's a whole different. I, I can see it so differently, but in the moment, man, a lot felt on the line. So I guess just wanting to say it's it's really hard, and I would encourage you to take small steps in um, kind of in a, a time that the stakes aren't so high. If you're if you feel open to um, maybe challenging some of the unhelpful OC behaviors. Oh, and the other thing I was thinking about what Lexi just said about coaches and coachability is this idea that an OC person can almost go so far into just listening and responding to what the coach has to say that they're kind of disavowing themselves and not and not trusting their own body's cues, mm-hmm. right? That they're not um, having their body's response be a part of what they are bringing into Um, what they need as an athlete that actually could be really valuable information and really enhance performance. Um, And so that would be just another thing to, to consider in this is can you turn to your body for decision-making and, and have your body actually give you some good information um, that, that uh, could be, could be part of that flexible control and the, what else, the receptivity and openness. Mm -hmm. Um, because this whole no pain, no gain, I just have to be a soldier and do what my coach says. I mean, I know at least in, in my experience with athletics, that didn't serve me well. There was a part of listening to what the coach had to say. And yet there was also really important information that my body was saying as an individual athlete. And in um, RODBT, we would hold the dialectic of wisdom and self-doubt, which I think you're, you're getting at. Kara, where where the wisdom might be how your body is experiencing the sport and the self-doubt might be letting in coach's voice and holding both of those as important sources of information and not neglecting one or the other. Yeah. 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 I love that. Um, that actually brings me to kind of this new idea that we had for ending mm. today. Um, one of our listeners actually requested that we kind of pose some takeaway questions that people can be pondering on their own. So we wanted to offer those to everybody just as as things to reflect upon or maybe some prompting questions. 
Kara, can you read this for us? Great, yeah. yeah. So first question is, what is your motivation behind sport achievement? And what are the sacrifices you're making to achieve your goals? And is that is the effort in alignment with your values? Do you still have joy in your sport? And what are you afraid might happen if you break a training rule or an exercise rule? And to what I was saying earlier, what rule might you consider changing to see what happens? And if you take that risk, what support do you need to do this? Awesome. I love those. Um, If you yourself as a listener have further questions or in general when you're listening to The Appetite, if you have something that you're really wanting us to discuss or a question you want us to answer, you can now email us at theappetite at opalfoodandbody.com. We are really excited about getting some questions from you all and hopefully incorporating them into an upcoming episode. Winfield Vikings. What? <laughs> Winfield Vikings. Yeah. Wisco Vikings. What? what? You were a Viking I was a too? Viking too. Yes. Wisconsin Lutheran. Ooh. I was Scots. Go Scots. <laughs> Scots. What is a Scot? Scotsman? Scottish person. Oh. They played the bagpipes. Oh, yeah. Really yeah. scary. It's really, really scary, Kara. <laughs> I don't think I ever was attached to that. I went to a school that was the Barons. Which is like <laughs> le- the leprechauns or something? I don't know. I think that's, that's also not right? Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Jack Straw Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetites music, to Opal Sarah Taylor for production assistance and editing. You can find more episodes of The Appetite on iTunes. You can subscribe in order to find new episodes every other week. If you ever have questions for us, as I mentioned earlier, you can email us at theappetite at opalfoodandbody.com. If you're interested in learning more about Opal, find us at opalfoodandbody.com or on Facebook or Twitter. Twitter.